There are many voices out of the Jewish mystical tradition, but one of them is that to see Moses as someone who came to understand what reality really was, that he is an enlightened individual. He essentially becomes enlightened at the burning bush. And that story is about him understanding the nature of reality and achieving enlightenment and wondering, and because as I said, the word Torah and the word for light are different roots, but they sound so similar that they become a very, very important holy pun, a holy connection, that they sound the same. So the fact that when we, he, Torah is revealed to him, meaning he is enlightened about the nature of reality, and similar to the Buddha who achieved enlightenment, um, the Buddha's teachings both reflect reluctance, that people are gonna be able to actually follow them or understand them, just as Moses was he found it difficult to speak for someone who ends up speaking a lot and speaking very, very well. So I take that as his reluctance and that what they actually teach not, is, is basically on some level relating what they came to understand about reality, one under a tree and one at a thorn bush or at a bush, relating that to something about their biography. And so the teaching somehow combines their enlightenment about reality and what they think is worth teaching about. So for the Buddha being affected, both growing up in uh, the, the, the myth at least, so you gotta go with the story. The story is they are protected from seeing the world as it is. Both are raised in the palace conf confines. And for Moses, he's protected from the social injustice that slaves make up the society, that support the society, and that as a Hebrew growing up in the palace, he didn't realize um, the injustice and, and, and also the fact that a tyrant can condone murder, that people can kill each other, he does a murder, that people are allowed to beat each other based on what one tyrant says is okay, and a sense that, well, it's always been this way, so it can continue to be this way. When a Torah crown, um, uh, when a, when a, when a Torah crown bell rings, an angel gets its wings. So if you hear, it's, uh, there's Torah crowns being changed. Um, so, so for one, the protection is he doesn't, he's shielded from disease and death and poverty. And so when the Buddha has the enlightenment about the nature of reality, the message is oriented around being freed from the cycle of death and rebirth, and we're gonna to get to that in a second, and so I, I won't have to say it now. And how do we basically deal with the world when we allow ourselves to be hyper aware and not in denial about death, disease, and suffering? For the, and for Moses, grows up with essentially these forms of injustice, that people are violating what Rav Nadav uh, says every time he teaches the Ten Commandments, which is that you have like a direct apprehension that some things are just wrong. Back in moral philosophy, th they used to mock this when I was in the 80s when I studied it, moral intuitionism. Although some great, some great writers, um, uh, Jewish Schlar and others, supported it, which is that, that the re phenomenologically, when we look at our experience, when we see a, a, someone being, a, a, an animal being tortured, that something says you don't have a right to do that. 
and that you have an apprehension of things that are just essentially wrong and need to be changed. And that forms a lot of like, yeah, I mean, you can, you can do whatever you want with the environment. Is it just a rational, I mean, you can approach ethics rationally saying, well, if we destroy the environment, then future generations will die. Of course, if you're in this generation, let's have a great party. Let's cut it all down. Let's boost the economy at the expense of the future. Let's borrow all the money. Let's have negative interest rates, and then we can all clean up. Just spend all the money now. Um, so that sometimes the idea that, well, it's just not rational because of future generations, it depends if you care about future generations. So you can do a rational approach to ethics or a direct apprehension. Moses has a direct apprehension of the, of the wrongness of the society in which he lives. And so after his enlightenment, he has a certain kind of teaching. And they're a little different. So in the first session, I read from Moses' teaching, which is when you look at Mishpatim, what is said directly following the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, it is this social legislation about how you treat strangers, how do you treat the people that work for you, how do you treat animals, how do you treat the environment, how do you treat, treat the non-Jew who lives among you, and so it and the fact that you can't have a king because, it, because the only laws of the universe come from God, come from the laws of the universe. If it's wrong to torture a child, it's wrong to torture a child. Like, that's just the way it is. Like, you don't, there's, nobody can say different. Um, I mean, they can say different, but no one makes the laws. So that the laws of the universe are universal. And so Moses' teaching reflects his past experience, his three things instead of death and uh, disease and uh, poverty were, are essentially the Egyptian beating a Jew, a Jew beating a Jew, and then boys bullying girls. And in all three cases, he tries to stand up against injustice, then gives up about the world, then achieves enlightenment, and then finds a message that combines the enlightenment about reality with how you approach this. So that was session one. We talked about the three marks of, the ex of, of existence in Buddhism, to the extent that we can talk about it as novices, which I think is an okay place to start. Um, anitya, impermanence, that all things are impermanent and that everything is in a constant state of becoming or change. Number two, uh, dukha, um, or which I, I, I may mispronounce the Sanskrit, existential suffering, which, and we focused on that at the last session. We looked at it in rabbinic thought, that if you, if you don't laugh at the rabbinic commentaries on Genesis, because they can be kind of funny and you can, you can, you can tame them. You can say, oh, this is such a cute Rashi, and this is a, you know, such a cute um, you know, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak. But if you actually look at them, they're saying something very similar to Ducha, if not the same thing. They say that to be godly is to be independent. It is really to not have to rely on anybody or anything. And in that sense, for the most part, God is independent. Although now, if we want to change this reality of the earth, God is in partnership with us. So God does limit God's power in that way. And Shabbat does not have a ben zug or a bat zug. Shabbat does not have a partner. And that they challenge the idea that we're actually made in the image of God because they say the ideal that we're made in the image of God is that we are self-contained and independent. But then that plan changes when we become beings that split and have to um, procreate in the way we do because then we have to reckon with other people. And this causes a state where what we're striving for is some kind of independence, but the more we become enlightened about the nature of reality, the more we realize 
I'm not only interdependent with family, I'm interdependent with my local, interdependent with my local community, and I'm interdependent with the people I don't even see, meaning the non-Jew lives around you, the stranger, the widow, the homeless, the environment, the animal, that we're all interdependent. And so that the higher you rise in holiness in a way, the, the, the more you are challenged because you realize I can't just pretend it's just me. I'm interconnected with the future and the past. I have obligations and responsibilities. And so you see that they're doing something similar as dukkha. And number three, the Buddhist mark of existence is anatma, no thing, no thingness. And we did a whole session on the Jewish concept of ayin or uh, keter in Kabbalah. And, or the enlightenment of God's name, yod heh vav -Heh, meaning itself something like the process of becoming, that God's very name is, the, is becoming, is change, and we talked about, which could be wrong, the Kabbalistic idea that we see things frozen by the way our minds perceive things, but truly if we could see things as God sees, we would see process. I pointed out that I think that studying science is a kind of Kabbalistic enterprise, because what you're trying to say is, um, well, sure, I mean, I see that fork now, but in the context of change, what are the laws governing that? Well, if it's biodegradable, it could go back to cornstarch and dissolve, although if I put it in the recycling, it ruins the recycling because it actually doesn't recycle, and it causes China to reject our recycling, and like, it, or you're trying to understand, like, um, a great way to be a parent is to look at developmental psychology, to understand how a child's developing, what their next step is, rather than just saying, oh, you're so good at drawing, you know, like, which is just freezing them in a moment. So that science itself, when you think about it, is a mystical enterprise, because you're seeing how is what looks like solid and fixed things governed by machut, governed by the God's kingdom of laws, which include all kinds of different laws. So those are some of the things we did, and now, I want to talk a little bit about Shabbat. So to get to the end of it, or the end of that piece, I'm going to try to grab Heschel's The Sabbath, although I only have quotes from it. Um, here. Oh, I found it. Sorry, Ed. You're about to do a mitzvah. Um, so now, as always, with, when I listen to teachings and sermons, I want to know, so what? A lot of this is interesting and I appreciate that, but how does it help me live? I, can, I think what, at least in Theravada Buddhism, everything else is difficult. I TA'd Zen Buddhism for years at, um, in graduate school, and it, it's, a, it's a different animal. But in the, in, the early, in the early classical Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, the goal in some ways is to, of course, live in the present moment. What it means is to allow the things in front of you which really aren't things because of no thingness, because of ayin, to allow them to be what they are in the, as they are changing. And to try to see things in the context of change without an expectation or a demand for things to be a certain way in the future. To let, to let whatever has passed be in the past to see the things in their dynamic manifestation, be real, the way God sees everything, let's say, in Judaism, and to not be connected to the future. I gave you one example in a past class, which is that someone said, well, would you ever cure a disease? Would you ever write a book? Would you ever do scholarship? 
And I, my, my, my cheap seats answer to that if, as the you know, intro to Buddhism freshman teacher, TA, is to say, you can be attached to the process as long as you are not attached to results. Can you have a joy of creating art without being attached to whether the art sells or people like it? Can you be, and could you, let's say you're in the process of doing art and you're 90% of the way through your book or your canvas or your sculpture, could you have the awareness to say, I'm done with this process. Inside, I've moved on. I don't need to work on this anymore. Like, so, you, because you see, Buddhism always undermines you. I could say, be attached to the process, not the result. But then they could be like, you shouldn't even be attached to the process. You know what I mean? There's truth in that. So it's awareness of being in the present moment. I want to be in the process of doing research. I, you know, could I, and it's not just pure research. I could be trying to find a gene that gives someone a predisposition to a rare disease or a common disease. But I love the process of doing this, the process with working with people. But if I actually come out with a negative result, I don't feel like a failure. And of course, as we all know, with the way science is done now, my brother's a scientist, so I, I, I talk to him, the pressure to know what you're gonna find before you even start to look. Because that's the nature of grant writing and grant distribution, and so you find what you said you had to find, and then people question your research, and then you run out of money, so you take money from corporations to tell you exactly what they wanna find, and it's all very complicated. It, it, it's hard to be a scientist these days. So. Um, could you, could you actually say, I, I remember my brother told me his like dream project was to set up Rat Town. Rat Town would be an entire town of rats that he would build on this floor of his, of his lab in Boston. And, uh, and he would just like, instead of examining one thing, he would just like watch them and introduce things into the town. And he would have a little rat brothel and then he'd have like a little rat like, um, like you know, rat like drug area because he studies uh, addiction. And he'd have, like he'd have these other things, you know, rat entertainment and movies and stuff. And, and just see, like try to observe and figure out like what am I noticing about what they're doing and I have no idea what I'm going to find. And then I said, you should do that. And he was like, yeah, I don't I have no funding for that. That would, no, no, no not at all. So, uh, so how, how do you, so now the step forward. I'm gonna mess this up, I'm gonna do my best. So what is nirvana in Buddhism? What does it mean to live in some kind, of, to achieve a state of, sometimes nirvana is translated as enlightenment. What it means, of course, is cessation. It means cessation. And essentially, in some Buddhism, not all. The cessation is the cessation of rebirth because karma is a bad thing in classical Buddhism, right? These days, karma is a good thing, but karma, the idea that you have more work to do, that, that you are not in a state of enlightenment, and so you're constantly messing up, sounds like Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, you're constantly messing up, and so you're constantly doing more damage to your own karma and others. So you gotta, you gotta be reborn to give yourself another chance and to suffer the consequences. That you don't have immediate consequences, you have delayed consequences for the most part. That's why instant karma is a good thing. Um, and that, and if you're a psychoanalyst, or, um, then you're like, I know exactly what you mean. Like sometimes 30 years isn't enough psychoanalysis. They're gonna have to come back and we're gonna continue where we left off. So it's that idea that rebirth is not a good thing um, for the Buddha. And 
the cycle of suffering, meaning you have attachment and you lose what you love, like the Buddha kind of was doing, everything is, everything is the, when, you, when you see the world as it is, you don't just see the person smiling, you see them dying. You don't just see them getting healthy, you see them getting sick. And so you, you don't just get to see them holding onto your hand, you actually are at the same time experiencing them um, losing them. And so that to live in a state where you see the world and sort of past, present, and future at the same time of, of yudhe vavhe of Adonai, for a Buddhist, it, it's very, very challenging. Uh, and so if you don't, if you're just gonna live bad faith, then you're gonna be on this, also the cycle of samsara, the cycle of, of, of dukha, of suffering, of losing what you love, as well as messing up. And so it's, nirvana is the cessation of rebirth. It is just bringing it all to a halt. And to basically be, as we spoke last time, you want to be like a perfectly centered axle on a wheel. So the wheel spins so smoothly around you that you have an utter equanimity in the middle and no bumps. So one of the definitions of dukkha is it, it's, it's a, it's the, it, means a bad, it means a bad wheel or a bad axle. So when you don't have a perfectly centered wheel and you're driving, it's a bumpy ride. So I said last time that one of the ideas of the suffering is you have this bumpy ride because you're not really grasping reality. You're not really grasping Torah, as we say. And, and so life is, it has the suffering in it. So how do you get to that middle? How do you achieve nirvana? How do you get to cessation? How do you live a life of living in the present moment and fully where you're also letting everything go? Um, you're not attached to something being the same way tomorrow as it is today. So what does the word Shabbat mean? So we just sang it, right? What well, we sang part of it. Uvayom Hashvi, and on the second day, Shabbat Vayinafash, Shabbat Vayinafash. God ceased and was refreshed. God ceased and was refreshed. So the very word Shabbat indicates a time of cessation. And like, I don't read all the Jubu stuff, um, but I, I'm sure other people, I mean, no one ever pointed out to me, but I'm sure it's been pointed out before, that the word Shabbat and the word Nirvana certainly have a superficial connection, but I don't even think it's superficial. So that Shabbat does not mean to rest. Sometimes it's translated God stopped, but God ceased. And Vayinafash is, you know, it, it, right, it, it's, it's a nifal or whatever. Or it, it's, it's a reflexive nifal. It means that your nefesh, your, your spirit, your animating force, the thing that makes you not dead, that that is renewed. You are, some people, you know, if you're, if, if you're renewal, you know, you say, oh, you are resold. We'll go really far. You get resold on Shabbat. Or, but I'm happy with your, your animate, the thing that animates you, your nefesh is, um, refreshes itself. You are renewed, you are refreshed. So it's the ceasing that refreshes you. You can go the direction of the Hillel and Shammai argument where Hillel says, if you're really supposed to rest, I'm sorry, Shammai says, if you're gonna rest on Shabbat, stay in bed, keep the lights off, don't, don't, don't mess around with all the potential uh, temptations of uh, having a non-Jew light a lamp so you can actually read a book, no, no, no. stay in bed and rest, kind of thing. You should rest, rest, rest. And Hillel says, that's not Shabbos. You don't have Shabbos unless there's joy in it, unless there's celebration, unless, because other, because you don't just get refreshed from sleep. You get refreshed by something else. So I'm gonna leave their discussion behind and then turn it over to your imaginations. So what if, well I think it is, 
Shabbat is supposed to be challenging those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. It's a teaching that comes from Moses, channeled of his understanding of reality, comes from God, from an understanding of how the universe works that says, you know, I don't think, I always pick on Ed, you know, I don't think Ed can go to work. Like, as Jews, or Moses, can you really be enlightened every second of the day? I mean, I don't know about you, like, I, 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 don't, I, I, don't, I don't think I can be. I don't know how to let, Labriot, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how to tell my daughter, Ziva, oh my gosh, you're so great, you're such a great artist. I'm not really supposed to say that. Like, she's an artist in this moment, but maybe she's not gonna be an artist in five minutes. And maybe I'm putting a negative idea in her head that now she's supposed to be an artist, which means she's not good at math. And, she, and so then, then, you know what? She doesn't have to take the advanced art, math class, right? It's, it's nothing wrong being in the normal math class, right? And, then it's like, and suddenly I've molded her whole life based on one moment, which I needed her to be. I told her she was, and I froze it and I stuck it in the future, and then I created an obligation for her to see herself through the eyes of daddy, who didn't really see her, because I wasn't throwing, viewing her as a process, I viewed her as a thing, and I thought I was doing her a favor. So that, but during the week, I can't live that enlightened life. Sometimes I just look at Ziva's picture, and I'm like, I love it, you're a great artist. I mean, I, like, I, I love your art, I mean, draw me another one. I can't wait to see more. Um, and yet, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. Shabbat is supposed to be this idea that we are enlightened on a schedule. We are enlightened one day a week, and it is a massive, massive challenge. Can you be enlightened for 25 hours? So for example, think about the way it is and, and how it goes, um, and I'm gonna share a little bit of, of, of that with you. Um, so, and, 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 I, and I know I shouldn't do a tangent, I'm telling my, the quick tangent is only the fact that the one thing I really don't like about some of the Judaism I've seen or I grew up with is there's always this tension in Judaism to tame it, to make it like just a joke, to make it just a simple thing. It's like, you know, I don't know, when the rabbi turns to me at the, the college Chabad and says, it's Shabbos, dance! And I'm like, well, I don't really feel like dancing. Oh, it's not a hard thing, you move your feet, it's so easy, you dance, you dance. Like, and there's always a part of me, it's like, you're making everything like so, so, so ordinary. You know, like, like, I, like, I'm not buying it. So for me, it's like sometimes we make everything a PJ library book. Like just a simple, oh, Tashlich, it's nice, you take your sins, you throw them in the water, and I, I want to go deeper. Like, that's not the tashlich for me. Like, I, I, I really need to go deep on this stuff. So here you have Shabbat. It's not so hard. You like some candles. You invite some people over. You can't make a challah. You can buy a challah. It's not so hard. You know, you have a challah. Well, you don't like challah. The rabbi doesn't like challah so much. So it's like, well, I don't know what to tell you, but maybe you can make a sourdough and braid it, but you tell your wife that's what she's there for. So, um, you know, like, there's like this, this idea that it's not so hard. It's not so hard. I completely disagree. I think of the hahefech. I think of the opposite. There's nothing harder. Shabbat is the challenge. Be enlightened for 25 hours. So you've had the I've had terrible, 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 terrible week, and I'm just like I've got the source down to here. I feel terrible about myself. I, I didn't even call that person, and their mother died, and I, and 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 I didn't even get to visit this person at Glacier Hills, and I've got stuff on my desk I haven't even gotten to. I'm embarrassed by the way it looks. I haven't seen my kids in three nights, and I'm like. I'm just complete failure here, and I'm not keeping up, and blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, you know what? And then I'm like, oh my gosh, it's one minute to six, and I have to go into the sanctuary to lead services, right? 
And then I sit there and I just, you know, like you drop whatever baggage you've been carrying. And that's where the pilgrimage psalm starts the Kabbalah Shabbat, you drop. Anything from the week, you can't carry. It goes back to the whole idea of carrying. You, you can carry within a domain. So if I'm at home, I can carry, you know, I can carry a, a fizzy water into the next room, but I can't carry it out into the street because I can't cross into the public domain. I can, if someone loans me an umbrella in the public domain, I can carry it in the public domain, but then I can't cross over into a private domain. So Lechun Aranana has this great idea, which is there was the pilgrimage psalm, that when you're, you're going to go from one domain into another, you can't carry through for Shabbat. So you drop, I can't carry anything from the week into Shabbat. No anxieties, no cares. Anything I didn't get to, you can't get to until Saturday night. I mean, literally, unless it's a matter of life and death, it can wait, period. And we say, oh, it's so nice, I love Judaism. It says, you, everyone loves that rule because they're like, you get to break Shabbos for saving a life. Isn't that great? It's like, almost like we're celebrating, you get to break Shabbos. I like that law because it's like, you know, save a life, of course, you know, but the thing is, everything else can wait. So you cross into your domain, and now I'm here. And I'll tell you, I mean, for those who come on Friday night, I think they can say that, you know, I'm, I'm not faking it till I make it. I mean, you can probably see, like, the, the stress falling off of me. You know, it, it's such a lovely time. Sometimes I put poetry on the wall, or I'll be like, I just have to, I, you know, back, back in San Diego, I don't think they like the poetry so much. And I'd be like, I'm sorry, but I got to read one, because I need it for me. You know, I need to read a poem right now, because my soul needs it. So, like, I'd, I'd read one, I'd be like, I just love this poem, and, and I feel better. And then it's like, who's ever at services, you don't give a sermon about the people who aren't there. Right? You know people should come to shul more. They should come to shul more. You should go tell all your friends. You know, it's like, no, 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 no. We are a gathering of pilgrims who, and, you know, who have the same destination. And I enjoy everyone who's there, whether it's 11 of us or 180 of us or 185 of us like last night. Everyone who's there, this, it's not about who's not there. In the present moment. In the present moment, these are my friends. In the present moment, this is my community. And it's not about who's not there because that's not in the present moment. And every one of them, I want to know what their good news is and their bad news is, and I want to know where they're at, and I want to hug them. And then people always say, well, Rabbi, you know, you must be home by 7.05. No, I usually get home about like quarter to nine because why you, now, now I sound like the Chabad Rabbi. Why are you in such a rush? Why are you in such a rush? Right? Because when you're in the present moment, it's fine. You know, I don't know. I, I, I sit down and maybe I talk to Susie, you know, and I'm like, I'm not in a rush. It's Shabbos. It's in talk. You know, I mean, people say, you know, oh, you got to get home to eat dinner. Trust me, they ate it two hours ago. It'll be waiting for me when I get there. And then you have Shabbos dinner. Let's just say you're not doing services. Whoever came, came. Invite people you don't know. And these are your friends in this moment. It's not like, well, these are my substitute friends because they live down the street, but my real friends I went to college with. That's living in the past. Right? Um, Live in the present moment is, I'm here for the people who are here for me. You drink some wine. You don't have to if you're in AA, but the tradition is you are loosening a little bit of your inhibitions. Not too much. Again, in Judaism, if you're drinking on a Tuesday night, you know, someone says, I see you're drinking on Tuesday night, we need to have a conversation. But on Friday night, you're not driving, right? You drink a little bit, you enjoy who's there, the kids were always like, you never give me dessert. You get dessert. You want seconds. You want thirds. It could be the end of the world. Right? In other words, we're not worried about the future for, for the moment. 
Like this is, we're, we have, if now is all we have, this is all we have. No rush for people to go away, to run home, except they should get home, they should, everyone should leave by midnight because if you have a romantic partner, then at midnight, the kids, if you have kids, they should be asleep, everyone should be asleep, and then it's time to get busy. So, um, and so according to the Zohar and, and Jewish tradition, Friday night, if no other time, Friday night at midnight is time, which is whoever, I shouldn't say whoever, if you have a regular committed relationship, as we say in conservative denomination, doesn't matter who your past, commit, your past relationship was with. It doesn't matter what your future relationship, if there is gonna be one, is gonna be with. But if you are with someone, be with them, right? It doesn't matter exactly what they look like. Maybe they don't look like what, you, what, they, 20, what they look like 20 years ago. I guarantee you, you don't look like what you look like 20 years ago, you know? And the thing is that, right, and, and to think, it is a little bit enlightenment. It's a little bit like, this is my last day on earth. If nothing ever continued, like what beauty is in front of me right now? And I'm in no rush. We're in no rush. You know, so like, this, like let's take our time. It's, it, it's incredibly romantic, because there is no work the next day. There's no, I have to do this. Oh, I've got a chore, right? And, um, and then the next day, go be with community, right? I mean, if you want to take a walk or do yoga, I'm not telling you what you have to do. A lot of Jews didn't go to synagogue. Not all Jews were like shul goers for all of history. But if you're like me, I want to have a little bit of enlightenment. I want to be stimulated. You know, sometimes I hate what the rabbi says, but I gotta admit he always makes me think, and I appreciate that. And on high holy days, I'll probably like at least one of his four sermons, and the rest of them I won't like, but he did make me think about that thing. Um, and I wanna I, I want think about something I didn't think about before, something in Torah, something from a tradition. And again, you go through the rest of the day, Whatever the rest of the day is, it really varies from person to person. It could be nature, it could be friendship, it could be lunch, it could be napping. But it is in a way, don't be tempted by looking at your phone. Don't worry about what's in the news. Keep yourself shielded. Live in a state of enlightenment. Shabbat vayinafash, cessation of all of that past and future. And in this moment, you live in this way, your spirit is re-souling. It is reanimating. It is a reanimating force. And then we do Havdalah, and I, you know, there are different interpretations. Nobody knows the exact right interpretation of Havdalah. But one of them is that the Bissamim are smelling salts. And I'll tell you, to come out of a state of enlightenment into a state of lots of unanswered emails, anxieties, and homework, I think you need some smelling salts. I mean, like, I mean, I'm like, I mean, I need something. Just give me something to like face the, the week. And then you go back. So the idea is, I actually think Shabbat is saying, can you live in a state of enlightenment for 25 hours? And really, really try. The kids, if, let's say you got kids. You don't have to have kids. But you know, some of us end up with kids that are not the kids that we thought we were going to get. All right? And it's like, I may not be able to have the soul level to love them as they are, or as they're becoming, or all of that, all the time. But on Shabbat, I love them. And on Shabbat, I also see them as changing, right? It's because it's like, the, it, people can change. People are changing. 
I have the time to breathe, to look at them, to be with them, and it's through the silliest things. What do we do on Shabbos when you kind of keep it more, I don't know what to say, uh, rigorously? We sit and we play Monopoly, right? Who has time for Monopoly? Oh my gosh, ever. You do on Shabbos afternoon, right? What? Scrabble. And it's like, and the conversations that happen over board games, talk about being in the present moment. It's like you almost need this distraction. You take a walk, and the walk is longer than it normally is. You know, sometimes when it's raining, right, when we've got like we have extracurricular activity and this and that, and someone's got to make dinner, when it's raining, we don't run out in the rain. On Shabbat, when it's raining, we're going to go out and stand in the rain. Like, you know what I mean? Like, why not? It's, we're not holding anything up. So it's like you, you live in this, this place that the, I'm in the moment with these people who are changing. And you get the chance to hear how they're changing. This one I thought was no good at math. I realized she's cleaning up at Monopoly. And I'm like, we got a sticky in the advanced math. We got, we got time for summer school. You know, like you catch up to where people are at. So that is a little bit of Shabbat. Now think about what Heschel says, and I could quote a bunch of it. Obviously the major statement on Shabbat is Heschel's. Now think of what Heschel's trying to do, speaking to a general audience like Moses, but also trying to say something crazy deep for those who are ready to take it on, which is Shabbat is a temple in time because it is a period of being, I wish he had said becoming, but he's smarter than I was, so I'll let me. It's about being, not having. You live in a realm of being, not in a realm of having. Think of Hebrew for a moment. Even if you know basic Hebrew, you know, how do you say, I have a, how do you say, um, I have a daughter? So when you say, I have, you say, there exists, there is for me a daughter. Like she exists for me. In the realm of having, I get a call from the fourth grade teacher or whatever, or, and it's like, oh yeah, that's my daughter. She's the one that fell down. Or, she belongs to me. Her existence is in its relationship to me. I have her. So in, in Hebrew, you can't say, I have a daughter. You say, she's there for me. Like she exists for me. She is for me. So when Heschel's saying, we live in the realm of being and not in having, he is saying, there's the yesh, Without the Lee, people get to exist outside of their relationship to me. So when we start to live in how they're just be, I just let her be. And I just let myself be what I am. And I let see what happens when I, let, when I do that. But during the week, I don't always get the chance to do that. So the brilliance of what I think is Judaism, I mean, I am a rabbi, so I'm allowed to advocate for it, is that... Like, it's basically saying, you know, do you have to go and live in Nepal in a hut to be enlightened? Well, actually, what I think the rabbis, maybe the Buddha too, were saying was going and finding a hut up on the top of a volcano and living all alone, you think you are independent, but you are still interconnected. You're in, the, the breath you breathe, you breathe out, is being picked up from another. The breath that's coming your way is coming out of a coal-fired plant. You know, uh, the water you drink is a water that's shared with everyone. You, the, the model of the solitary monk existing forever like that is a little bit disingenuous because you are actually interconnected. So what, then what can you do? 
you, well, you can always do retreats and things like that. There's nothing wrong with silence retreats and tools and exercises. But Shabbat, one day a week, you live in the realm of things as they are, as if they didn't have to be something different before, you're not, and they don't have to be anything tomorrow or in the future. And you live in a way that the world was made for me, that this is what it's all about. Uh, and that's what I really think Shabbat is. And, and so if someone said to me, well, Rabbi, you know, do you really think we should keep 25 hours of Shabbat? And I'll, my normal answer is, no, start with lighting Shabbat candles. That's fine. You know, but really deep down, I'd like to say, the reason you should do it is not so God counts your mitzvahs and so that, you know, the, 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 the scales are in your favor come judgment day. It's like, no, I think you should live it because the more you do it, like the more you will be refreshed. It's a challenge to enter a different way of reality and it, it changes your whole life. We get to be enlightened one day a week. He who wants to enter the holiness of the day must fir first lay down the profanity of clatter and commerce, of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of acquisitiveness and the betrayal and embezzling his own life. He must say farewell to creative work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive with the help of him. Six days a week we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On Shabbat, we especially care for the seed of eternity planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. Six days a week, we seek to dominate the world. On the seventh day, we try to be in charge of our own self. To set apart one day a week for freedom, a day on which we would not use the instruments with which, which have been so easily turned into weapons of destruction. A day for being with ourselves, a day of detachment from the vulgar, of independence from external obligations, a day on which we stop worshiping the idols of technical civilization, a day of armistice in the economic struggle with our fellow men, people, and the forces of nature. Is there any institution that holds out greater hope for our progress than the Shabbat? The meaning of Shabbat is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week we live under the tyranny of things in space. On Shabbat we try to become attuned to holiness in time. So I think the word holiness is to live in a state of enlightenment. It is a day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal in time to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation to the creation of the world. That's why it's a taste of the messianic era. I have one more brief, that was the long teaching. I have a super short one. So ready for this? The priestly blessing, the main blessing we use from the Torah. So let's look at it as the way the medieval rabbis did. Yevarechacha Adonai v'yishmerecha. So what does it mean to be blessed? May God bless you. So, so may God bless you. Okay, blessed means you get more than you need. Okay, that's the basic definition of uh, what a blessing is. You get more than you need. Then why do we need v'yishmerecha? May God bless you and guard you. Now, if you've studied, and I know many of you have, you know that this becomes a big debate for the rabbis. Why, why, why isn't it enough to say, you know, um, it, uh, 
may you be blessed with more than you need. May you, may you have bounty. It's like very Thanksgiving. May you have bounty. Good things happen to you. Why do you need virish Merecha? So the medieval rabbis say, because it's very, very painful to get the blessings in your life and then lose them. You know, you're wishing someone you should have love, and you lose it. You should have children, and you lose them. So when you think about it, there, 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 there's really an extremely deep vein in this teaching. You need the v'yishmerecha because you're telling someone, may you get what you want, and may God guard it, like guard you from losing it. You need a shomer. You need a God as watchman going around saying, nobody touch it. I want Nadav to enjoy it a little bit more. That cat, that cat Nadav loves, don't touch it. I know it's got feline HIV and leukemia, but we want one more year, all right? So it's like, we're going, you know, and so that it, let you savor it, let you enjoy it. So you need to get to hold on to it. And it is, the, it is anita, it's the impermanence, it's the pain of losing. It's straight out of the Buddha's story. So Yevrecha Adonai V'yishmerecha, and that's the main thing. So then it says, may God's light, back to light, enlightenment, it's always there. May God's light shine on you and bring you chen, bring you grace, right? So what does that mean? And why is it longer? Rashi points this out, but he's summarizing a huge conversation. Every line gets longer and longer because it gets deep, it gets more challenging and more challenging. It, you, know, it, it, um, you know, if I say to Roanne, you know, I hope you have a great year with a lot of, a lot of blessings. It's easy, right? She'll probably get some. I mean, not because of me, but like, hopefully some good things happen in her life. That's not the hardest thing. But the second part is, do you get what you need? So grace, the concept of chen, has a lot of discussion. Today, in the, in the 20th century, they stopped talking about it because they thought it sounded too Christian. And they translated as, may God be gracious to you. I never know what that means. I'm like, God, give me a good table in the restaurant. Please be gracious, you know, say thank you. Um, but the concept of chen, the powerful Jewish mystical concept of grace is, you get what you need when you need it. So now think about the Buddha suffering for a second. I hope you get lots of things. And I, know you, I hope you hold on to them because when you lose them, you're gonna be sad. So now you need a longer blessing. When you lose the things that came your way, may you get what you need when you need it. Your basic requirements, the basic things you need, and in the moment that you need it. I just need this. That's a much deeper blessing. And then the blessing gets even more words and deeper. So it's like the Buddha is like watching the world on fire. How can I love this person? How can I make this friend? How can I buy this house? Like, like when it's all burning in front of me. Like I'm losing it even when I'm having it. So the third part is, Yisa Adonai Panavei Lecha, so which is, Ve'asem uh, Lecha Shalom. The implication here is, what if you... You got what you wanted, you didn't get to keep it. You got what you needed in the moment you needed it, thank God. What if you don't get that? So if you don't get what you need when you need it, I just need more time with my loved one who's dying. I just need more time. I just need some more money to pay my rent. I, I just am this much short. I just need this much money for the copay on my operation. 
right? I just need this much money to put my kid into college, whatever it is. So what happens if you don't get it? So then the final part is, when you don't get what you need when you need it, may you look up and feel that God is looking at you. It's a, and may you feel shalom in your heart. It's basically saying, may you not feel alone, even when you're not getting what you need, but may you feel shalom, a sense of peace. That is the ultimate enlightenment. In a way, it's straight out of classical Buddhism, which is, let me put it to you. You're losing it all. You didn't get to keep it. And on top of that, that little bit you just needed when you needed it, you didn't get. Can you find a place inside of shalom, some sense of wholeness, some sense in which you are a perfectly aligned middle of the wheel that is spinning? May you achieve, as they say in uh, Musar and in Kabbalah, may you find a way to have equanimity, a way in which when someone says that was the best sermon I ever heard, you can hear it and appreciate what that person's saying. When they say that was the worst sermon, you ruined my high holidays, I've ever heard. You can, you can, instead of feeling bad, you can say, I can take that. I can, feel, I can be with you in that, um, but I'm not going to carry it forward. So can you be in a place where even when the worst happens, in a sense, that you find a place of equanimity in the middle? So that is Shabbat and the priestly blessing as a way of Jewishly trying to live enlightenment. And that brings us to 126. Does anybody want to make a comment? You're, you don't have to. Sometimes at the end of things, you're like, you have to have a question. But we all know most people have comments. Yeah. So in Buddhism, um, one of the signs that you are following the Buddha's teachings correctly is that you have equanimity. That you, because to release the ego is to release that it's about you. So like if someone says, you know, I mean, I've always shared things from my own life, so I, I should try to make some up and come up with some nuance. But, it, but, but if someone says, you know, I don't know, I put all this work into a chapter of my dissertation, and then someone says, well, it's like, that was a joke, right? You didn't really put any work into that, because that's a mess. Without the ego, if you can try to let this ego go, the ego, the ego is a narrative of who I have to be. It's a narrative of the fact that the way people see me is really saying something truly about who I am. So if my advisor sees me as, as like this chapter is horrible, then it disrupts me, right? Because I feel like the real me is the way people view me. If he views me this way, it's terrible. But when the ego is let go, then this is him commenting on this chapter. And in a way, the person with equanimity, it doesn't ruffle my waters. Um, it just says, um, well, who is he in his process? And what is he saying that could help me? in my process. How can I grow out of this? Sometimes there's nothing. I mean, you can also have the ego involved, like, I need to grow, I need to grow. And, but the, the, the sign, I'd say in Buddhism, is that they're basically saying that, that putting the ego aside is that whether someone flatters you or someone criticizes you, you have the same reaction, which is, I'm just going to be with this person in this moment and see like, what is true in this moment. I can freeze this moment to see it a little bit, but I can also let it go. And so that you, 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 know, you know if someone's showing that they don't have this peacefulness about them, that they're not really enlightened because it means they must be concerned about either losing something like your respect or you're saying something about their essence. But really it's anatman, that you don't really, in, in, in classical, you don't really have a soul. There is no you inside of you. You are a burning fire. You are not, you, you are not a, a rock inside 
an appearance of a burning fire. So it's not like they've said, all they've said is, or, you know, I mean, I, I, I once, I, I used to teach this in Hebrew high, right? And I would just relate the whole thing of, to being rejected. And I'd have like 10th graders in my class crying. And be like, how did you know? Like, they're, they're crushed. You know, I remember, I think I, I, I saved, I, I mean, I had the same crush on a girl from kindergarten all the way through sixth grade. And finally in sixth grade, I had the courage to ask her out. And she went, she said yes, because I think whatever. And we walked to the local Jewish deli from the elementary school on a half day. And I ordered French fries. And I was so nervous that I picked up the, instead of the salt, I picked up the sugar. And I poured sugar, true story, all over the french fries. And in that moment, she's like, you just poured sugar all over the french fries. And I'd love to tell you that she said, it's okay, I know you're nervous, it's fine. She said, I wanna go home. She's like, she's like I don't wanna be here. She's like, I wanna leave. So I was like, you know, like, so, you know, like, so I was telling teenagers like a little bit about this and, you know, and obviously with teenagers and not saying it's just teenagers, but then in the course I did with them, I would start reading I and Thou with them. Um, from Buber, I'd be like, you know, but basically what I teach them is that when someone rejects you, they're not rejecting you, right? It's some like, pro like they, they don't even know you. It's like, it's their process. They're in a process and for whatever, but it's not saying anything about you. You didn't do anything wrong. You aren't anything wrong. It's like, and you know, preferably you don't spend 30 or 40 years trying to learn this you realize everyone is basically in, a pro in processes. And they are so deep that you need your therapists. I mean, I pointed that out before. I mean, like, I mean you, know, what, you know, like I said, I never realized how much my, my parental issues were like part of who I was. They were my, the, my energy process going on until, until my therapist helped me see some of it. And then some of those processes dropped out. Like in my process, some things I left behind. And I change something, and then be like, no, you never get over those issues. No, you can change. You really can. Not everything. So I was trying to say, you don't even know where this person came from, what their brain is thinking, what's going on in them, so they didn't reject you. So I was trying to teach equanimity to teenagers, and they, you know, and they, you know, and they're trying to relate to it, you know. But so I do think it's a Buddhist connection. It's probably too long an answer. Any final comments or questions? You know, to be in this like, to really be in the moment means that you are embracing with one arm, it's the embrace, one arm you're embracing, one is pushing away. You are embracing and appreciating what you have in your life or what processes are intersecting with yours, but you're also letting it go. And that's like real love. Real love is like fully being with it as you're not holding on to it so tight that you're not, that you can let it go at the same time. One final thing, final sentence is this. Last year, Yom Kippur, you probably don't remember my sermon. The sermon was about how I approach Judaism, which is that it's not that you do these things to be a good Jew. The purpose of keeping Shabbat is so you're a good Yid. And the purpose of being kosher is so you do Judaism really well. And it's not for one person to show me an example. Well, I daven better because this is the best example of Jewish davening you can see. Because I don't tell my Mormon friends and my atheist friends and all those people, like, you should come over for Shabbos. I want you to see what a real Jew Shabbos looks like. My view is you do these things because they are ends of, in and of themselves. They are fulfilling and they change your life. And Shabbat is the perfect example. I'm not trying to live a Shabbat to show you I can live a really good Jewish one. Like Shabbat can be living 
in a complete, in, in, you can actually be practicing living in an enlightened state, can completely change your life. So that any person who comes and visits you for Shabbos should be able to say, you are a wise and discerning people. Shabbat shalom.